Hi, I'm Tim Sullivan, the director of UC Press, and I'm here with Edward Watts, who is the Vasiliadis Endowed Chair and Professor of History at the University of California, San Diego. Welcome, Edward. Thank you. Uh, he is the author of Riot in Alexandria and City and School in Late Antique Athens and Alexandria, both from UC Press. But today we'll be discussing Edward's UC Press book, The Final Pagan Generation, Rome's Unexpected Path to Christianity, which is just coming out in paperback. The book recounts the story of the Romans born just before the Emperor Constantine converted to Christianity in 311. Is that right? Do I have the date right? Uh, 312. 312. I was very close. The fourth century included dramatic religious and political changes. Heated confrontations uh, saw Christian establishment legislate against pagan practices. Mobs attacked pagan holy sites and temples. And by the mid-fourth century, well-heeled middle-aged pagans found their world was transforming. Watts examines why this final pagan generation born to the old ways proved both unable to anticipate the changes that imperially sponsored Christianity produced and unwilling to resist them. So Edward, could you just start off by telling us what motivated you to write the book? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting situation to be a Gen X person in the United States uh, and to understand that our generation is never going to be big enough to shift the trajectory of things in the, in the country. And when I started work on the book, uh, it had not yet become clear that the millennials would be sort of deciding the, ne the next course in the history of the, the country. Um, but this got me thinking about what it would mean to be a generation that is in a sense unmoored in the historical record. Um, a generation that didn't make the decisions that shaped the world they lived in. Uh, and so this is why I was drawn to the people born in the 310s. Now, unlike Gen X, they aren't smaller than the generation that came before them or the generation that came after them. But they also uh, managed to lose the window to really shape the world in the way they wanted to. Uh, and in their case, this failure came less from demographic um, considerations and more from a failure to understand the actual trajectory of events around them and the consequences of those changes. And so what you have is a generation uh, that made its mark on the historical record in cultural ways, but the direction of the empire and ultimately because of the crucial changes in the fourth century, the direction of the world uh, changed kind of in spite of them, um, without them really realizing this was happening and without them realizing that their generation lost the chance to really make a mark in how that change would happen or if that change would happen at all. I had not made the Gen X connection at all so that just brings it home to roost uh, in an even more personal way. I was born in 1970, and I think you said you were born in 75. So that, that kind of um, illuminates the book in a whole new way for me. Um, well, let's start with a really basic question. How do you define final, final pag pagan generation? Uh, so this is a group that I, in essence, this is a term that I made up. Mm -hmm. um, and the reason that I chose this is because in the 310s, uh, there is this really significant shift in the way the empire works. Um, in the year 310, the empire is still persecuting Christians. Mm -hmm. And in 320, the emperor Constantine is a Christian. Mm -hmm. uh, and the church is, is, the church is being supported by imperial resources. The government is encouraging Christianity and the emperor is openly embracing it. And so the people born in that decade uh, see the world change radically. I mean, it's a 180 degree change in what the state is doing during the time that they are infants. Uh, but because this change happens so quickly, they're born into a world where paganism 
is more or less what it has been for millennia. Mm -hmm. uh, rituals continue to be performed in the way they have been for thousands of years. They church, the temples remain open. Uh, many of these temples are hundreds of years old. Um, many of the activities in public life still center on these rhythms that are determined by traditional Mediterranean religion. Uh, and so these people are born into a world that has deep foundations that no one can imagine really being shaken. Um, but by the time they reach adolescence, those foundations are beginning to be challenged. But it's very hard when you live in a world where you have a baseline set of assumptions about how things work. Um, to understand that those baseline assumptions can be shaken and ultimately can be um, disrupted and destroyed. Uh, and so that was what interests me about this, this group of people. Um, they really are born in one world uh, and they mature in a different one and they die in a completely different one. Yeah, that's really striking over the course of the book. You, I, I know at one point you talk about maybe under Julian or Jovian, you talk about kind of the middle-aged experience. Um, you have people. You have you have people from this generation who have who are part of the bureaucracy, who are kind of well healed into middle age, and they find themselves without power, with declining power, uh, which was really striking to think about it over this life cycle. Yeah, I think that that's. Uh, there are a few moments where they realize that things might be going wrong, <laughs> um, right. and I think one of them is when they're middle aged, um, because for a number of these people, um, and especially prominent is the uh, philosopher and rhetorician Themistius, uh, for a number of these people, middle age represents a kind of restart on their lives. Mm -hmm. um, and in Themistius's case, his wife dies um, and he remarries and he wants to have another child. And so he disengages from public life for a little while because of personal concerns. But the years when he does this are crucial years. Um, when on some level, if he was just a political actor and not a person, you would expect that potentially he would have some input in how the world was was functioning. Mm -hmm. um, but for personal reasons, he doesn't. Uh, and we can understand that as humans. Um, but we can see this in a particularly profound way when we start tracing the experience of all of these people, when they reach middle age and, and like us, um, try to reinvent themselves and redefine what they're doing and what their life looks like. And you also talk about kind of I mean, one of the themes that seems to recur in the book is the built environment, that they are surrounded by, as you say, uh, temples that are hundreds of years old, that the, the built environment of, of their existence still revolves around that pagan experience. And yet the social currents are carrying them in a very different direction. Yeah, and I think this is actually something that on one level, um, people in the United States and probably Europe even more so can identify with. Um, the built environment in many of the cities in the United States and, and European cities is an overwhelmingly Christian built environment. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the churches are empty. Um, the congregations are very small. Mm -hmm. um, some masses and some churches have you know, very few people in them. Uh, masses are being canceled, but the built environment doesn't look that different. Right. And so there's a way to sort of reassure yourself that things are as they've always been, because as you walk through these cities, they look like they, they have always looked. Mm -hmm. um, but what is actually happening in those buildings and what those buildings are actually doing does change over time. And it's sometimes hard to wrap your mind around those changes when you're used to a city looking and functioning in a certain fashion. Yeah, for sure. Um... It's also, it, it's a retelling of the fourth century in a lot of ways. When we think about the transformation of, of uh, the empire becoming Christian, that 
in a in a cursory way, well, the emperor converts, and of course, then the empire changes, and we know the end of that. We we know where we're going, and oftentimes the history is told in that way. So, how did you conceive of telling it from this? I mean, really, a, an old but alternate perspective from most histories of the fourth century. What particularly interested me um, is these moments where something happens, and you can tell that people from different generations understood them differently. Mm -hmm. Uh, and so there's a series of events in the 380s where Christian imperial actors and people allied with them start taking um, aggressive actions against pagan temples. Uh, and for people who are in their 70s, which the last, my last pagan generation or my final pagan generation is, for them this is horrifying because it undercuts everything that society is supposed to stand for. Mm -hmm. But we also have accounts written by people in their 30s and in their 20s mm -hmm. who see this very, very differently. And when historians write the history of the fourth century, what we have tended to do is blend those perspectives mm -hmm. and not say that there is a lived experience for people born in the 310s that is going to be different from the lived experience of people born in the 360s. Um, and so if someone from the 360s is describing an event, they're going to see it differently than someone from the 310s. And when we, do, when we talk about modern history, we have no problem doing this. Mm -hmm. um, one of the examples I use in the book is the, uh, the sources we would use to talk about Woodstock. Right. Um, and we would never turn to like Laura Ingalls Wilder uh, for a discussion of Woodstock. <laughs> um, it, would, it wouldn't be relevant. I mean, she would potentially, um, someone like her who is in their 90s uh, might potentially have something to say about Woodstock, but it wouldn't be relevant because right. it's not the story we're interested in. Um, but when we blend the accounts of somebody who is 25 years old and somebody who's 75 years old for the fourth century, we're missing that nuance. We're in a sense destroying or eliminating or not acknowledging both perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, and this, uh, this makes it hard for us to understand all of the different levels these events will resonate in society um, because it matters what a 75 year old thinks. It also matters what a 25 year old thinks. But if the 25 year old is, is more closely aligned with the perspective of people in power, that will matter more. Right. And so was this a, a matter of disentangling those perspectives within the sources or using sources in a new way or were you uncovering new perspectives? I think one of the things that uh, a lot of historians, even ancient historians, don't really understand is the amount of material we have for the fourth century. Mm -hmm. um, the fourth century is, in some ways, the last great flourishing of imperial Roman Latin literature. And so there's a huge amount of material that comes out of that environment from people like the poet Asonius and the historian Ammianus Marcellinus. But it's also a kind of um, high point for both Greek pagan literature. Mm -hmm. um, and we have a large number of pagan rhetoricians and pagan um, historians who write in this period about these things. And it's also, of course, the, the height of the patristic moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and so you have a huge number of Christian authors who are also active at this time, uh, including people like John Chrysostom, who are the author of more surviving Greek works than anyone that came before them. Right. Uh, and so the source base is immense for the fourth century. And so it isn't, it isn't even necessary to sort of parse perspectives out of one source mm -hmm. because you have so many different sources that talk about some of these events um, that you actually are, are able to link together a whole large number of diverse perspectives. 
Um, and part of what appealed to me about the, the people I chose to focus on in this book is nearly all of them, um, not only are authors, but they're authors of, of large corpuses, corpora of material. Uh, and so you can watch them interact with the events around them over time because you have so much material related to them and, and written by them. Right. Um, so you bookend the book, so to speak, with the destruction of the Temple of Serapis, I think, in Alexandria. So why, and that's the, the 392, mm -hmm. so at, at the end of your story, and why... You've mentioned that there, like by the 380s, there's um, there's kind of Christian mobs going after pagan institutes institutions. Why why Alexandria and why Serapis? Uh, so part of that is personal. Alexandria is a city <laughs> I absolutely love, yeah. um, and I think with all ancient historians, if you talk to them, they they have their city, um, mm -hmm. and Alexandria is is one of those for me. Uh, it's it's really a city that I I adore, um, and I think in antiquity it's an incredible place. Uh, and Serapis and the temple of Serapis is in many ways like the symbolic heart of the ancient city of Alexandria. Mm -hmm. uh, it's located on the biggest hill in Alexandria. Um, and it, the temple sits at the center of a large complex with all kinds of things in it, libraries, um, the, what's left of the great library of Alexandria is housed there, um, arcades, uh, various sort of shrines and other things. And then the central temple of Serapis is we're told the second biggest temple in the entire Roman world mm -hmm. um, after the temple of Jupiter in the city of Rome. Uh, and so it's a, it's incredibly significant on a whole lot of levels. Um, and when that temple is destroyed, it's destroyed in a, a way that is going to be shocking for pagans um, because there's an outbreak of violence in the city led by pagan intellectuals who are operating out of schools that are centered on the Temple of Serapis in the library. Uh, and ultimately, the temple is so well built and the area is so separate from the city that they're able to hold out um, against a Christian siege. And the emperor has to bring in troops to mediate this dispute. And after the dispute is mediated, the pagans, um, the teachers, the students, melt back into the city and then Christians come and destroy the temple. And so what this uh, indicates is the, the direct challenge and the last sort of armed challenge of this sort that pagans will mount against this encroaching Christianity. The people leading this are not the last, the final pagan generation. These are their children in a sense, the, the next generation. Uh, and when they fail, the imperial government can mediate between these groups, but it's also clear it's not going to do anything to prevent the destruction of pagan property um, and symbolically important pagan sites. Uh, and, and so that I think is a moment when everybody realizes where this is going. Mm -hmm. um, pagans don't have the capacity to respond to Christian attacks anymore. Um, they cannot prevent these things from happening. The government can prevent violence against people, but it has no interest in preventing violence against structures and these sorts of built environment and um, the sorts of elements of the built environment that can reassure pagans that the old reality is at least accessible. Mm -hmm. uh, and so it's a moment that kind of unravels any kind of assurance that pagans might have um, that the structures of Roman society are going to protect their ability to interact with this world that seems to be slipping away. And that is a remarkable, as you say, this is a 
from the three tens when this generation is born to three ninety two when there's the destruction of the temple that really seems to highlight um, the rapidity of the change and going from that invisible change that you talk about to this highly visible change uh, by the end of your story. Yeah, and I think the important thing that we sometimes miss um, is this change unfolds gradually, mm -hmm. but there are moments when it becomes clear what it means. Um, and what you see with this generation is much of their life, this is not what they're thinking about. Um, this change is happening gradually. Um, things are slipping away gradually, but they're focused on their careers. Mm -hmm. um, they're focused on their family. Um, they're focused on getting more money or getting a better job or getting a better position or cultivating a good relationship with an emperor. And occasionally they'll drop down and engage with these ideas, but only occasionally. Uh, and this is, I think, the signal in one way failing of the generation. Um, they do not engage. Their children do, but they really don't engage in a persistent and sustained way because they have other things they want to do, mm -hmm. uh, other things that they want to achieve. And there are opportunities they want to take advantage of. Uh, and so engaging with the issue of religious change is something that can disadvantage them in their careers. It can disadvantage them uh, economically. Um, it's something that they just choose not to do. And I think that's a message that anybody can take away. Uh, mm -hmm. It's very easy right now. I mean, we live in, we're in California during a wildfire outbreak. It's very easy right now to say we need to focus on climate change. Mm -hmm. um, but for how much of our life have we actually done this? We've raised families, we've gotten married, we've um, done our jobs. We've spent a lot of time doing other things. And so what is the story that will be told about us? Mm -hmm. um, and is it going to be the story that, that we tell about this generation? A generation that frankly didn't understand what its priorities could have been and proved unable to preserve a world that they valued um, because they frankly didn't have the vision to see that that world was under threat. I think you fault them for that failure of imagination to imagine way, imagine both what was coming, but what could have been in its place. I think I, I, think I wouldn't fault them for it, but I think mm -hmm. we have to acknowledge it. Mm -hmm. um, I think a failure of imagination, especially a failure to imagine a Christian world that never existed and that didn't need to exist in that fashion, um, that's, I think, unfair um, to place that heavy a blame on them. But mm -hmm. I think we do have to realize that in retrospect, they would have probably acknowledged that they would have made different choices if they had known where this would have gone. I think that is a terribly effective note to end the interview on. <laughs> um, I want to thank you very much for your time, Edward. Uh, again, the book is The Final Pagan Generation, which is now on sale in paperback. Wherever books are sold, I would encourage you to uh, order from your local indie or at bookshop.org. Uh, and again, Edward, thank you so very much for joining us. I appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much. This was wonderful.